I'm James Randi, and you're listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, the real ESP experience. You are listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European-level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode number 15. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Jelena Levin and Pontus Bökman. Sziasztok! Всем привет! Hey, Sanalehu! Hi again, guys. Hello. Good to be back. Hi. Always. Yeah. Good. Actually, we recently met up with Yelena. Yeah, I, I actually met up with, with Yelena and a friend of mine and Yelena's husband. We had a wonderful time in the wonderful city of London. So, yeah, we should definitely do that at some point. Yeah. The three of us together. And I want to mm, promote some... the wonderful exhibition in the Natural History Museum called Other Worlds that displays over 70 beautiful pictures of the universe and planets and it's just completely breathtaking oh yeah sounds good just as the natural history museum in itself oh my god this hundred million years dinosaur skeleton always blows my mind every time (laughs) i see it i'm like oh my god here it is again yeah i was there a couple of years ago it's great incredible yeah yeah i try to do uh go there every year um and especially uh, i'm i'm in a better situation in that regard now since I'm actually living in the country, but um, even even way back, I I tried to come come over to the Natural History Museum every single year. It's a good experience, and you know, just to pay a visit to Mr. Darwin, who's mm. sitting in the hall in the Grand Hall. Mm. So, guys, what have you been up to lately? You know, I I forgot to mention the last time that I had a, a fun experience. We during the skeptics in the pub in Stockholm. We did a Skype conversation with uh, the skeptics in the pub in Porto, with Diana and Huao. Oh, cool. And even though, yeah, it was, it was great. Mm. It, it, even though we, we didn't really get the sound to work very well, etc., it was still fun. We waved and we, when we didn't hear each other, we, we uh, used the chat functionality instead. So it, it was fun. So I'm, I'm going to uh, make a, a little bit of a contest of this. I think using the calendar that we have, I encourage everybody to see if there's skeptics in the pub going on at the same time. Please Skype with each other and then let us know how, what's happening. Cool. Absolutely. That's a brilliant idea. I think that would be great. I love your idea. Yeah, it would be Excellent. good. Excellent, yeah. I will go even further. If you cannot find another skeptics in the pub that's at the same time as your skeptics in the pub, why don't you Skype me and I will bring my beer and I will sit in front of my computer and we will cheer and we will uh, talk to each other. How about that? Okay, I think we could <laughs> extend that to us as well. Yeah, yeah it's a great, uh, great idea. Yeah, yeah we'll do, let's all do that. Yeah. Uh, we will be drinking beer every night because the calendar is full. Yeah, I, I could live with that. <laughs> <laughs> drinking beer every night. Especially, especially with the cheap beer that you can have at home, right? Oh, we're going to talk about the Portuguese skeptics, by the way, today. Yes. For a very good reason, but uh, all at the right place and the right time. 
But uh, we have another kind of news. Our new radio spot is out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> promote, promote, promote. Please share and like. Yeah, if you like the show, tell your friends and let them know about us and, and so that they download it because it gives us great satisfaction to see that a lot of people are, are listening to the show. Yeah, we are very happy with uh, the reception of the show so far, but turns out that uh, certain European countries are very poorly represented in our listener base. So... I think or we think it would be best to ask you, dear listeners, to help us spread the word. So if you could share it on uh, different channels, different social media channels uh, on your account with friends of yours, that would be very much appreciated. Indeed. Do you know what we missed? In the UK, between the 7th and the 13th of March, there was acupuncture Awareness Week. Oh, God. Did we miss that? Yeah, we did miss that. <laughs> Never mind. You know, the UK has lots of these official national awareness weeks. Of, uh, I, I, no, by official, I don't mean it's proposed by the government. Uh, the UK government is proposing very silly things, but not awareness weeks. So it's um, it's a thing. And... <laughs> On the, during that week, I have to say, I don't know if you followed his uh, blog, guys, but Edzard Ernst was on fire. Yeah, He he, he posted a, a new blog post every day. <laughs> that was brilliant. Um, even Quackometer um, wrote a piece about acupuncture. Um, it's, a, it's a very educational read. It's highly recommended to everyone. Absolutely. Who I had a very nice experience um, the other day. I was listening to a podcast the Skeptical podcast with the three poles, and we got a mention on the show, which was a very kind gesture by um, the three poles. Thank you very much, guys. Um, it's 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 a great pleasure to to be mentioned on your show. But th- there was a bit of a funny thing as well um, attached to this situation, and that was that they also mentioned the movie, uh, the film, The Invention of Lying, which was a funny thing. Because that was completely unrelated. There was no way we could have known that the other is talking about that film. So it's quite a coincidence. I wouldn't see any more into that, but still, it's very funny. So, if anyone hasn't seen the movie yet, it's about time. Okay, do we have anything else? I got a message from Richard Saunders oh. from Australia. Hey, Richard. Hey. So it's not really, uh, yeah, yay. Hello, Richard. <laughs> Richard's a great friend. He's a great supporter of us, and he's always very kind. He's He has written a uh, a piece together with Chrissy Wilson in The Skeptic, the, the Australian uh, Skeptic magazine, uh, called The Medium, Neither Rare Nor Well Done. Which I think is a pretty <laughs> funny title. Yeah. So even th- this is this is about a, a, a medium in uh, in Australia called Lisa Williams, but I think you can read it with good. Uh, it, it's applicable to to mediums all over the world. So please read it. We will link to it on the on the show because it's published on on the net. Okay. Thanks very much. Also, we've got lots of feedback, by the way. Some of them will be used on this show as a source for segments that we are doing or uh, news items that we are covering. And once again, please keep them coming. You can find us on Twitter at espodcast underscore EU. 
or we've got our website theesp.eu you can also like our page on facebook and email us email address is info at theesp.eu that is correct and i'd like to add something else if you happen to use itunes we would really appreciate it if you could leave a review on itunes about the show or why not do a five star evaluation if you like the show that is if you don't don't bother <laughs> but there is another way of uh, letting us know what you think apart from what yelena just said uh, on the website under the episodes that we share the show notes Uh, there is a comment section, so you can even comment on the the actual episodes on that comment section. You don't have to uh, go on Facebook or anything to do that. But obviously, when you come uh, to visit our Facebook page and comment on the, the our posts, that is very much appreciated as well. Thank you very much. Yelena. Yeah. On this day, something happened a long, long time ago. What was that? Um, so on this day, the 23rd of March, 1907, um, a guy called Daniel Bovet was born and he had mixture of nationalities, Swiss-born Italian pharmacologist. Um, so he won a Nobel Prize uh, in um, physiology and medicine for the discovery of drugs that block the actions of specific uh, neurotransmitters and he is best known for discovery of t of antihistamine which is um, widely used as many of us know in in their own uh, experience uh, for uh, in allergy medications so he did good for humanity so he is also quite interesting or or i found him quite interesting and i wanted to mention him on the show Uh, because of the, his other research that he was involved in. Um, he led a study in 1965, um, or the, the study team, which concluded that smoking of tobacco cigarettes increased users' intelligence. No. And, Did it? Uh, really? Yeah, so I have actually... They dug, dug a little de deeper just to trying to find the study. But you know how hard it is if you're not in, in medicine field. It's very hard to find studies, especially that dated for free online. Um, even the actual original uh, article from New York Times uh, of 1965 would cost money to download. So I didn't do it, sorry. Um, but what uh, he implied in the study... He's, uh, as, I, as I found one of the you know bits about it, that he didn't mean to make geniuses out of people by you know making them smoke, but just increased intelligence. And I thought, well, that's we all know that tobacco is bad for you. I mean, it's been uh, said again and again, and the, the tobacco companies back in the day, of course, used to shout of how good they are and cool and whatever else. But then um, I did a bit more research, and actually, since that time, there were other researches done about the same thing. So the tobacco, um, well, I don't know whether the, the research uh, or the researchers uh, were f funded by tobacco companies. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, but uh, indeed, it has been discovered that um, tobacco can help 
for example, in learning and increase intelligence. And it's nicotine that, that makes this effect. And um, uh, I will link a couple of the articles I found on online to those studies. But it's um, quite interesting that um, still, you know, in the 21st century, when we kind of know or we think we know that tobacco is bad for you, there are some researches going on um, that would, you know, want to contradict that. In fact, I'm just looking at this study um, from 2012, which is not so well, it's not, not so long ago, um, that says brain researchers uh, quote that smoking increases intelligence. So I am skeptical. And if there are any listeners who um, maybe heard of other researchers or medically qualified and can confirm or deny uh, or shed some more light, please email us. It'll be interesting to know because tobacco, just like alcohol, is a very controversial topic or, or just any other drug. And you know how there is all sometimes you see um, in the press uh, articles about the one glass of red wine is good for you or whatever, you know. Mm. So I kind of assign it to the same field, you know. Mm. We want to think that something is good if we're addicted to it or we like doing it, you know, and then but actually there is no substance to it. So... There you go, uh, Daniel Bovet. Hmm. Merci. That's really, in really interesting. I'm a bit skeptical as well, and I'm thinking maybe yeah. it's it's confirmation bias, or if it's you know it's hard also to make those kinds of studies in humans because then you will have to force people to smoke, and you'll have to force other people not to smoke, and it's not really ethical to force people to smoke just to see if their intelligence improves. So it's hard yeah. to make that kind of uh, yeah. studies. Very hard. Yes, it's a very good point, Pontus. Obviously, they'd have to take a non-smoker, measure the intelligence, however they do it, and then make him a smoker. Make, yeah. um, but then I was thinking about people we know who had incredibly high intelligence, like uh, Hitchens, for example, and he was a heavy smoker. Um, but th Anecdotal. again, it doesn't, it doesn't prove anything. It doesn't prove anything. No, no. Anyway. My, my other comment regarding studies is it's very hard to make rats smoke. So, so, uh, <laughs> normally they use rats as, as the, uh, yes, yes. Because their, their fingers are too small to handle the lighter. You know? <laughs> oh yeah. No, but on a serious note, I think, uh, the, the greatest difficulty with a study like that is how to, yeah, the control. Because you have to kind of randomize the thing. You have to. You have to have a. Uh, you have to have it blinded. Um, it's not. It's not easy. So you. You have to have uh, people smoking, but not actually having tobacco in it. If you want to determine that it's the tobacco, ah, yeah, yeah. it's a tobacco that that actually. Uh, has that to effect. rule out the placebo effect? Absolutely, you feel more the, intelligent yeah, when you yeah. smoke. Ah, okay. And yeah. so there are lots and lots of factors. I don't know. There is probably a good way of testing this, but uh, and there's the question of measuring intelligence as well, which is, I know it's it's overly mystified, uh, but but to my knowledge, uh, IQ tests are. Uh, are sometimes heavily debated as well, so it's it's um, yeah it's a it's a difficult tricky. situation. Mm. It's it's very and tricky. And of course, like the studies I found weren't really in any scientific magazines or or, or you know the um, 
um, it's hard because we, we don't have access to the database. But I wonder if somebody who does have an access to the, mm. the, uh, the submitted papers can actually do a quick search on, on that. Uh, like one of the articles I, I, I found was, of course, in Daily Mail. But I mean, can we trust Daily Mail? I don't think we can. So, you know. It's a very meaningful and very reliable source. Daily, daily fail, my friend. The daily it, Mail. So, yeah, yeah. Daily fail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Thank you very much, Helena. Do we have a few events to talk about? We do. I'd like to say that I I wonder if skeptics are not secretly religious because it seems like over the Easter holidays here, there are very few uh, (laughs) skeptics in the pub. But actually, tonight... People are on holidays. uh, Yeah. (laughs) But tonight, as the show goes out, there is actually a talk in Örebro, Sweden, uh, where they talk about... the. Art of Talking to the Dead. So uh, I think that's interesting. (laughs) You know what we say, talking to the dead is easy. It's harder to get a good reply. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, is it just me or you have this association in your mind to the ESP yourself? (laughs) Okay, that sounds interesting. And uh, it's about the same, it's uh, uh, right about the same time as you Göteborg skeptics. Yep. In the pub, the full moon. They can do actually a Skype between each other. I <laughs> suggest it nice. to them. Oh, excellent. Yeah, good idea. On Saturday, the Madrid Scientific Literary and Artistic Athenium will uh, have a talk on how much truth is there in the emotional origin of disease. On Monday, the 28th of March, there will be uh, Edinburgh Skeptics uh, at the Science Festival. It's an eight night lineup. So you can find all the information either on our calendar or on the website, theesp.eu, or um, you can find the, the links on Facebook. Um, they've, they've got an event there. Uh, it looks very interesting and um, lots of different people attending. Yeah, lots of interesting talks about GMOs, about gender questions, material science, uh, psychics, everything. So it's, it really really sounds interesting, intriguing, actually. Yeah, on Tuesday, Cheltenham Skeptics will talk about gravitational waves. Uh, gravitational waves are, of course, all over the news right now, but it's very difficult to talk about them with expertise. So, Cheltenham skeptics do have an opportunity to do just that. And then we have in Tenerife, the same date, 29th of March, we, they are talking about these mathematicians are crazy. <laughs> so, okay, I, I can agree because I'm not a mathematician. I'd like to say that to me, it looks as if it wasn't a very busy week ahead of us, so it might be just us not knowing enough or not knowing of enough events to to share. So we would really appreciate it if you could send us your uh, information. Okay, thanks very much. Let's move on. Last week we covered the great news of uh, the University of Barcelona halting their master's program uh, into homeopathy, which is great news, but uh, not to everyone. (laughs) Because apparently, uh, Boiron, which is the greatest provider of homeopathic remedies of the world, is not very happy about that decision. 
But not only it's not only them who are very unhappy about the decision, but also the director of this master's program of homeopathy, uh, who accuses the University of Barcelona of acting as the Inquisition. That is because <laughs> oh because they actually decided not to go on with something that totally lacks mm. solid evidence of effectiveness. So you never expect the Spanish Inquisition. Yeah, the Spanish Inquisition, but it's it's such a frequently used comeback to refer to the Spanish Inquisition. It's it's terrible. Always like that. And not only in Spain, but in Spain is it's especially ironic, I think, <laughs> to talk about the Spanish Inquisition. But uh elsewhere in, in Europe it happens too. Um I had debates with uh creationists. They they do the same when you you tell them not to try to put their silly ideas into the science curriculum. That's that just doesn't belong there. As Homeopathy doesn't belong to a university because it's complete bullshit. Yeah, until they find the evidence. I mean, if they find the evidence, we're happy to include it. Well, in there, the are, there are lots of people uh, saying that. But I would say after such an overwhelming amount of research that has been done and found not to show any kind of effectiveness beyond placebo when you look at the 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 reviews the systematic reviews uh some of them have been published in in the last year or so still people keep saying that more research is needed no there is no need for more research as willem bat said on our last episode science has said its last word about homeopathy now it's time to act on it yeah exactly i mean so it's e- Everybody's free to put as much research they want into homeopathy. We can't stop that and we won't we don't even want to stop that. But don't use publicly funded uh, institutions to do it anymore because it's been done and it's been shown not to work. Yeah, but this is exactly why Boiron, um the the world's largest provider of homeopathic remedies is trying to gain ground in education into homeopathy. Ah. Um but at least defending this this uh, one program in Barcelona. Um Luis Alfonso Gomez, um skeptical journalist, wrote an article on the 10th of March uh with the title Boiron dilutes its own and homeopathy's credibility, explaining what happened when the company launched a rescue mission, so-called? On the 8th of March, they held a press conference in Madrid to launch a communication campaign in response to, as they put it, a full-scale attack against homeopathy in Spain. Apparently, they took it really seriously, as they sent Valéry Poinçon, Deputy General Manager of Boiron, to this event. Didn't go really well, though. First of all, this woman, who is one of the leaders of the company and went to Madrid to educate people out of their ignorance about homeopathy, as she put it, just didn't do her homework. (laughs) The result of her actions was a huge wave of ridicule on the pages of major Spanish news portals with brilliant headlines like um, French homeopathy giant admits they do not know how their products work by um, El Correo or Homeopathy Gets Serious The Audience Laughs by El Español but probably El País 
is the widest circulating among all that ran a long piece explaining homeopathy in detail and with an interesting question raised right in the title if homeopathy does not work why not prohibit sales wow i kind of have the feeling that this was not in Poinsot's mind when she travelled to Madrid to do something about the situation. But there's even more to this. Prior to the press conference, when the invitations were sent out, Gamest, this journalist I talked about, um, started a bit of a Twitter campaign with the hashtag Pregunta a Boiron, which translates into Ask Boiron. He started with a question about reliable clinical evidence. The best thing about it is that it's still ongoing. So, well done. But it actually gave me an idea. Um, I checked and Ask Boiron is not being used. Up until now, that is. Why not? Uh, I asked myself. So, as of today, we are launching the hashtag Ask Boiron on Twitter with the first two questions already asked addressing Valérie Poinsot herself. So, if you feel like you have any questions, go on Twitter Ask your question, and don't forget to use the hashtag AskBoiron so that everyone else can find your question. So, um, let's see how it performs. And I also would like to thank two of our listeners from Spain, Pablo and Bob, who were um, kind enough to draw our attention to some of the great articles I mentioned. Your contribution, guys, is very much appreciated. Thank you very much. And if you have anything else to share with us in the future, uh, don't hesitate to contact us with it. But let me just say a few brief words about Boiron, the company itself. It's a public company based in France, and there are several sources where you can find information about them. What you can definitely draw from all this is that it's the largest provider of homeopathic remedies in the world. They develop manufacture and market single component and complex homeopathic rem um, medicines, trace element supplements, phytotherapy remedies and health and beauty care products. Well, the description you can find on writers.com says it operates through several subsidiaries in Italy, Spain, Belgium, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Russia, Romania, Poland, Hungary, the United States, Canada, and Brazil, among others. Well, what that among others means exactly, we have no idea. Um, its Wikipedia article says it has a presence in 59 countries, but neither does it specify nor provides a source for the information, so I wouldn't call that reliable information. Yeah, we, we don't really know. And as you would expect, the company's own website tells you only stories full of testimonials, history of the company, etc. But what you can find is things like an interview with Valérie Poinceau on Marie Claire for uh, her being a successful businesswoman. Well, damn right she is, <laughs> with a company of that scale, marketing the most profitable bullshit of all time. Yes, she is a, a successful businesswoman. Speaking of which, the company's market capitalization amounts to almost 1.4 billion euros, according to Reuters, that is, uh, with a revenue of almost 624 million, out of which 354 million was their last gross profit. 
So it's not among the largest companies of the world, but it's a pretty darn big profit they're making there. Think about it. They have a they have about 3,000 employees worldwide, but that is about the greatest expense they have, um, as they don't have to spend anything on research, for example. Manufacturing is something they do, and they do have a so-called research institute, but I couldn't find anything that came out of there. So this is the company that we have been talking about. Yeah, I think it's quite telling also that it's not the first time I come across companies that combine cosmetics and beauty products with homeopathy. Yeah. I mean, is that really a company you would want to go to for your medical care? Yeah, but it's it probably has something to do with the legislation as well. So, like, if you want to do medical care, then probably there are much stricter rules that you have to um obey i'm not sure about that but uh but this is this is what my my impression is i would like to talk about the article um that was published in uh, the telegraph um and it was titled britain's mayor's stage druid healers hoax to highlight shortage of doctors and uh, it was obviously in France that, that it happened. Basically, in France, there are quite few very remote villages and uh, they struggle to recruit um, doctors to come and work there as GPs. And um, basically what they did um, was um, they were trying to get uh, some doctors in for months. I think in one instance, nine, nine and a half months, they were they were trying to get somebody in, advertising, etc. And nothing happened apart from one uh, healer applied for the <laughs> for the job. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, uh, so the, basically, they're saying then we got a call from someone who practices healing by the soles of their feet. We were scared that. Uh, that we would only find charlatans. At that point, we were contacted by a PR agency and they suggested uh, making the Druid announcement. So basically, the sole of the feet. I I tell you, people just just Mm. come up with some right rubbish. Um, So this Druid announcement uh, was basically to announce officially that um, their doctor in this particular village will be a Druid person. And to make it look real, they hired an actor who then dressed up. Um, and uh, I don't know if you guys um, seen a cartoon called Asterix. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, as a get-a-fix character <laughs> who was making <laughs> magic potions and stuff like that. Um, and they, they presented this act to the public and basically said, look, we're now hiring a druid healers. Um, but of course, um, the, it didn't go further than that. Um, the, the, uh, mayors then turned around and said, look, it wasn't, um, a for real thing. It's, it's all a joke. Um, but, uh, we want to pe- public to be aware of the shortage of doctors and it definitely increased the um, awareness and publicity was um, ridiculously high. Uh, they um, got quite few, obviously, <laughs> people reading about it and hopefully it will result in some real doctors applying for a job. Um, mm. So as the article concludes, the druid was false, but the problem is real and uh, uh, you know, very, very interesting way of using um, 
alternative healers and medicine in uh, in a way to promote the you know the real thing mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah so yeah it's different so if the problem is real then i guess you still don't go to Brittany if you have a problem with your health <laughs> in case they hired a druid doctor <laughs> mm. yeah <laughs> but uh, but actually i think um come to think about it um i think uh, in britain in in uk we have similar problems with uh remote villages in terms of hiring gps um because they all want to be nearer the big cities like manchester london uh, leeds yeah. etc so if you're a gp in france go work in the countryside fresh air beautiful scenery what else do you need guys do you know or have you heard about the retraction watch no, no haven't that's a great website where uh, whenever a scientific paper is retracted for some reason uh, they put it on display and publish the fact that it got retracted Ooh. i think this is a fantastic means to provide transparency for science well there's a peer review process that is supposed to deal with misconduct and fraud but when it fails to do that exposing back practice is probably probably the best we can do so retraction watch is just awesome but what happened now turns out that a paper recently got retracted from the journal animal it was an article from 2010 written by several italian researchers from the university of naples and bearing the title fate of transgenic dna and evaluation of metabolic effects in goats fed genetically modified soybeans and in their offsprings the paper basically claimed to have found modified genes in the milk and blood of goats who were fed genetically modified soybeans sounds scary right it does but why did it get a retraction well these scary sounding results got someone um, really suspicious about the findings. Uh, she's another researcher named Elena Cattaneo, who happens to be a neuroscientist at the University of Milan, um, and she raised some concerns about the findings, but especially with some of the figures used in the article. These were pictures of electrophoresis gels and she found they might have been manipulated the details of the issue can be read in the retraction watch article that that we're going to link to on the show notes the bottom line is there were others in agreement with the concerns Uh, so the animal started an investigation that later was joined by the university of naples itself the investigation concluded that the figures are likely to have been digitally manipulated and therefore the findings cannot be considered reliable. So, this is important because we all know how some people can go nuts when they they hear the word GM and legislative changes are forced on the basis of so-called evidence presented by articles like this one. Cataneo, uh, who also happens to be an Italian senator, told Nature magazine, The case is very important also because these papers have been used politically in the debate on GM crops. And I couldn't agree more. This is why scientific misconduct cannot go on without any retributions. Um, And there is one more thing. One of the authors, a certain Federico Infoscelli 
from the University of Naples has gone through a retraction process before. It was for duplicating a figure. Go figure. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? So how many how many chances do you get? If you get a couple of papers retracted, then then you can't publish another paper that's for a worry. few years? Or... That's the worry. I think that's there are good... no restrictions like that. No, but there should be. But uh, actually, Steve Novella wrote on um, science-based medicine about it. And he writes that after two... Uh, cases of retraction because of uh, misconduct, that should be the end of the career of that person because they should never be cited as a reliable source to anything. So their result should not be accepted. Any result should not be accepted without questioning. But these results coming from these people should be rejected, just, just ignored completely because they are totally unreliable when this happens. There is no reporting on any kind of affiliation of this man to anti-GMO movements or anti-GMO firms, companies, but it wouldn't be very surprising to find out about those. There's another news item from the UK about the UK government. What they're going to do is to insert, or what they plan to do is to insert a clause into new and renewed grant agreements, uh, making sure that taxpayers' money uh, are not spent on uh, lobbying and uh, against new regulations uh, from the government. So that sounds like, a, well, okay, maybe you shouldn't spend public money to oppose things that are proposed by the public. The problem is that academia is publicly funded to a great extent. And that means if you really follow these new regulations, that if you work in a university or, 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 or any public office in the UK, you cannot uh, engage in lobbying. So you cannot oppose new regulations. Uh, I, this is now blowing up as, as a big debate in the UK because these new regulations are, are not, obviously not good. You, if you are in a university, doing research, etc., of course you must be able to question decisions proposed by the government. That's not uh, harmful lobbying, that's, that's sound things that has to happen. Research needs to inform the government. So um, there's a, there's some uh, Ben Goldacre, among others, have published uh, articles about this and uh, there's a lot of people trying to get this new regulations changed so it can't be interpreted in that way. I think it's it's an awful idea. It's a terrible trend that, that you can see in the UK that the government actually wants to lock out ideas that they don't really want to go by. And uh, imagine that. There is a movement here in the UK for scientists and the EU because the EU is funding a lot of science in the United Kingdom. And if the United Kingdom happens to leave the EU at some point, there's going to be a referendum, mind you, they might lose some of that money. That's one thing. The other thing is that when the government becomes the major supporter and major uh, provider of, uh, of funding for scientific research, and they can actually stop researchers from trying to effect uh, decision-making processes, 
That's when the UK government won. Mm. So they can say whatever stupid thing they want to say and propagate and make their decisions based on. Because scientists would have no say in it. There is a petition going on about this. And we'll link that uh, to the show notes. The petition says the cabinet office has announced that a new anti-lobbying clause will be included in all government grants from May 2016. This is an attack on academic freedom as it would stop grants for university research being used to influence policymakers. It is bad for the public interest and democracy. The petition was created by a man named uh, Bob Ward, and it is backed up by um, um, a brilliant organization, Sense About Science as well. Um, They give out a few advices as to what can be done uh, against this uh, planned new regulation. What they work for, actually, is social change um, about uh, the attitudes towards science. So... This is a classic example of that. Um, and it says, the petition says, if it reaches 10,000 signatures, the government will respond to this petition. If it reaches 100,000 uh, signatures, this petition will be considered for debate in Parliament. So there is a lot at stake. So I would urge everyone who can do that to to actually sign the petition what about the unicorns the unicorns yes there are no unicorns silly <laughs> okay there's no unicorns do you know where that, know. that's from there's no yes our good friend uh, diana uh from uh, portuguese skeptics um sent us um, an email about regarding the unicorn the unicorn prize and what they do um they basically it's an annual prize and they uh, award in three categories, uh, Flying Unicorn Award. Uh, they call it a fortunate prize for unfortunate ideas. Um, it's a satirical award, as you probably might uh, might have guessed. And it's created by the Comtep, the Portuguese skeptics community. So the three categories they're going to make an award in is the gramophone for the media, press, radio, radio television or blog, shooting star, for a famous person, and the Empress New Clothes for any other personality or organization that contributed to the propaganda of false or unproven ideas. So um, I think we should link to the um, English description somehow because the actual website is in Portuguese and we do have an English description here uh, detailing the... um, So each category will have three nominees. Um, and it's actually quite easy to, cho- well, uh, I'm, I'm thinking quite easy to choose from. Um, so the votes need to be in and before 30th of March and the winner will be announced on the 1st of April, which as we all know is uh, April's full day. Um, so I've scanned through the nominees and then they're quite funny and actually in some <laughs> cases scary. I mean, the Emperor's New Clothes nomination, the, one of them, is Geographical Society of Lisbon. Now, I was very surprised about that. Uh, apparently, this prestigious elite cultural and supposedly scientific society hosted the first um, Losa Brazilian Symposium of Astrology. And you just think, what? Why did you do that for? You know, so... Um, some other uh, nom- nominations, um, for example, in the shooting star category, will involve some of the local celebrities promoting um, 
alternative um, therapies. But we know how that goes. I mean, we've got a fair share of celebrities promoting stuff like that here as well. So, And I'm sure you, dear listeners, will also find that in your countries probably same happens. And since when did it become okay for somebody who is an actor or an actress to give opinions on medical issues? I still don't know where we took that turn. It's like completely ridiculous. Um I think it's okay to, for for them to to take a stance. It's just uh, what's not okay is accepting their opinion because they are celebrities. Well, I, mean, I mean, yeah, I mean yeah. the most ridiculous uh, example I have is uh, Gwen- Gwyneth Paltrow. I used to I used to actually like her boobies, you know, because she used to do some interesting her what? movies. what? Her boobies? Movies. <laughs> okay. She doesn't have any boobies. She's very flat. So and then. Um, I got very disappointed when she started promoting uh, one pseudo-scientific thing after another. Yeah. And, you know, and of course, we all know about steaming your lady bits. I mean, come on. It's gone a bit too far. Anyways, <laughs> so that's the um, uh, Flying Unicorn Award. Um, please uh, follow the link that we'll li- put in our description box. And we will try to, like I said, uh, display the English uh, translation of all the nominations for you. And um, you can choose and vote, and it'll be interesting to know. And I'm sure we will report on the uh, winners in April. Uh, definitely. And uh, yeah, sure. there is no geographical restriction. No. Uh, as to where you can vote from. So yeah, just go ahead and do it. And this this way, it will become, or it could become, a real international collaboration. That's. That sounds amazing. So we, we're looking forward to what the result is. Thank you very much, Yelena and Pontus. All right. Um, oh, yeah. I wanted to do a segment on this episode with uh, Hitler's penile issues uh, because it was circulating the news around Europe for a while. But then when I listened to the latest episode of TRC, the Reality Check podcast, Darren McKee did a brilliant coverage of the story and of whatever evidence is available there. So I do recommend everyone to listen to that episode. And uh, not only because of this, uh, but it's one of the greatest podcasts out there. So the reality check and there are McKee's segment on Hitler's micropenis question mark. Why don't we move on to our interview with uh, Antonio de Ognate? I believe with the recent events happening in Spain, she might have a lot of things to say about those. On almost every episode, we interview a person representing an organization or project, either from a certain European country or stretching across borders. This time, we have here with us Antonia de Ognate, Chief Executive Officer of the Spanish Society for the Advancement of Critical Thinking, organizer of Skeptics in the Pub Madrid and other events of the kind, and publisher of the Spanish-language international skeptical journal El Escéptico. Antonia, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here with you. It's a pleasure to have you. Well, could you please start with saying the original name of your organization? Uh, yes. Well, it's ARP Sociedad 
para el avance del pensamiento crítico. Quite a long title, isn't it? But it's, it sounds awesome. <laughs> is it an old organization? Um, is it, is it, was it founded long ago? Oh, yes. It was founded in October 1986, a long time ago, yes. Well, it's 30 years ago. Are, yes. are you going to have a large celebration this year? <laughs> well, I, I hope we will, yes. <laughs> what kind of projects is this organization um, involved in? So what is it you do with uh, ARP? Oh, yes. Well, we do uh, many different things. But uh, perhaps the most important thing we do is publishing El Escéptico, the Skeptica, which is our, our, our journal, our magazine. Um, it's uh, You've got to bear in mind that we make it on a voluntary basis. It means that lots of people, many of them are uh, professional publishers, but they do it on a voluntary basis while working for us at, at ARP. Uh, and that takes a lot of work, a lot of uh, research, a lot of, uh, I don't know, asking people to write good pieces for the magazine and so on. And it's, at times it's, it's really, really hard to, to work for a sceptical. But anyway, it's something we are very proud of. Uh, of course, there's also sceptics in the park. We started in Madrid in, in 2009. And it's been going on monthly ever since. That's something really hard to do, but something we love doing. And, uh, well, there are many other things we do, particularly um, uh, things such as uh, petitions against uh, pseudoscience, and particularly against pseudo-medicines pseudo-therapists that really worry us a lot. We did report on uh, that petition not too long ago that was uh, mentioned even by the Italian skeptic, uh, skeptics uh, sidecap. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I think they, they even joined you uh, yes. as a, um, an organization as well mm -hmm. in uh, the petition against pseudoscience in healthcare. Exactly, because, uh, you know, when... Uh, ARP was founded, when our society was founded in 86, uh, there were a lot of UFOs everywhere. Nobody seems to worry a lot about UFOs now, but, you know, uh, pseudoscience and pseudotherapies, quack medicine in general, do worry us a lot. Yeah, that's understandable. Uh, when we reported on uh, that petition, um, on the show, the number of uh, people joining it was at about 3,000. Where are we at now? I think we are about 4,000. I haven't counted it lately, but I think okay. it's about 4,000 4, people, yes. Most of them are scientists, yeah? Most of them are scientists. Wow, yes. that's that's great. How How much of an international petition did you expect it to become? So uh, do you have any plans to to go absolutely international with it? I mean, to use it on a European Union level? It would be great if we could have a European level petition of that sort. You know, things in Europe are really touchy-turvy, I think, are not terribly clear. Legislation in, in the different European countries is, is terribly different. Um, as far as medicine is, is, is concerned, things are really 
different. For example, if you take the case of Spain, you take the case of France, you see uh, homeopathy is in the system in France, <laughs> while it's out of the public system in Spain, even though there's a lot of, of homeopaths uh, in the country too. But you can expect to go to the public service of health and asking a homeopath in Spain, that's something unspeakable, right? Something you, you can think of. Well, in France, it's in the system. So that sort of things is something we could work out together, I think. But, well, yes, it would be great to have a European petition of, of, of that sort, but you've got to bear in mind the specific uh, peculiarities of the different countries. But it's interesting that the the, the Italian skeptics movement picked this up. So, is it is it uh, an established collaboration that you have with Italy, or was it just a, this one time? It's quite informal, but we are in touch. It's, uh, we are in touch, particularly through Twitter, which is something very funny, but that's the way it is. <laughs> and we are always retweeting each other, talking to each other, but there's no a formal cooperation. I think it could be done on a European level as well, the, the model that the, the UK skeptics are following, that they are doing their own stuff uh, locally, but whenever there is an issue, there is a topic that they they can unite over uh they do so they they can they can do and and do it together so uh, it would be interesting to see this uh petition elevated to um, uh, european level it would be great sometimes it's not so easy finding a clear uh person to talk to in each organization <laughs> it's not so easy yeah, but in Spain, you are not the only organization, are you? No, no, we aren't. There's another one, Circulo Escéptico. We, uh, we are in, in very good terms, in fact, and we cooperate in the skeptics in the parks uh, out of Madrid, in other cities, and we make many things together, yeah. And both organizations are part of the European Council of Skeptical Organizations, if I'm not mistaken. Do you plan to to get a bit more active if that's happening with other countries as well? Oh, yes, if of course. I mean, if something is moving at European level, we'll be more than happy to be there too and um, mm -hmm. and work together with the rest of people, yeah. Gabor Rashko, um, I recently talked to him. Um, he's the current chairman of EXO. And he really wants to to start the whole thing rolling, and uh, that sounds awesome. Uh, that that would be very much needed, I think, to to do a collaboration among um, all these um, organizations. Okay, um, but you are in the actual board of the the organization ARP. Uh, uh, how did you get involved? Uh, what what made you join the the skeptic movement? What's your background? Oh, well, my background, I'm a historian. Um, I work as a public relations, you know. <laughs> Working as a historian is not really feasible these days. So, um, in principle, my background isn't the typical one for skeptical involvement, which, at least in Spain, happens to be more typical of people of um, science background, okay? Mine is humanistic. But I got involved in it because uh, I've always hated with all of my heart, and I, 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 I know it sounds very 
very, very strong, but that's how I feel about it. I've always hated people lying to other people, saying they've got the answer to happiness, the answer to good health, the answer to get a miracle, and all those things. I've always hated Quakerism. I've always hated, uh, you know, that sort of um, people trying to, to tell you that they've got sexual intercourse with people coming from I don't know which planet and things like those. You know, I hated it with all of my heart. And when I uh, knew about an organization that was actually fighting against those things, um, I, I, I feel so strong about, <laughs> I, I joined. That's, that's it. Do you actually do stuff about um, pseudo history? Uh, not really, because the sort of pseudo history I've studied and, and I've uh, made some research about is not the typical kind of the, um, I don't know, the pyramids and so on is different. Is the, um, um, the fakery of uh, sources made in the 18th and 17th century in Spain. It's a different kind of thing. Mm. If you look at Spain today, what do you think is the most important pseudoscientific uh, issue that you're fighting? Well, uh, those days, no doubt, pseudo-therapies, pseudo-medicines. And particularly some people trying to sell MMS and homeopathy. Mm. But, but homeopathy is not officially uh, endorsed in, in, in Spain, right? Oh, no, no, it isn't. <laughs> it isn't. I mean, the, 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 the public system of health has no homeopaths. But, of course, there are many doctors who are homeopaths in private consultation. And the official associations of doctors and, and of, medi of medical doctors don't reject homeopathy. In fact, they even have sections of homeopathy. How about the general public in, in Spain? Are they into homeopathy or is it a, a minor thing? So-so. Uh, I think the problem is that many chemists are into homeopathy. And when patients go to the, to the chemist and they are given homeopathy by the chemist, they really trust They take it, and many people don't even know exactly what homeopathy is. Some people even think that it's something like herbal remedies or something like that. Yeah. You did join the homeopathy challenge in 2011, uh, if, if I remember well. So uh, how successful was that campaign in Spain? I don't think it was terribly su uh, successful. Not too many people joined us, but uh, it had quite a good coverage in the media mm -hmm. and it was really useful, at least in Madrid, to establish a group, a, a quite cohesive group of people working together in ARP. That sounds good. And how many members are there uh, for the for the organization ARP? Well, not many. <laughs> We are about, uh, well, not about exactly 263 people. Oh, that's not bad. Uh, yeah, I think I think it's still oh, it's still um, uh, a manageable number. It's a manageable number. Yeah. But do you have uh, people representing the organization who are frequently appearing on media, for example? Mm, some of our people are 
quite, uh, um, let's say, very well known for the public. For example, I think of Manuel Toaria, who's uh, who's member of ARP from the very beginning of the organization, and he was for many years the man of the weather, what we call in Spain the man of the weather, you know, the, the, the mm-hmm. person who gave the weather broadcast on Spanish TV. <laughs> uh, there are also uh, very important people such as, I don't know, the, the, the general manager of uh, the Pamplona Planetarium, uh, journalists, scientists, uh, well-known scientists, yes, uh, we are a small organization, but some of our people are, are really famous. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Antonia, um, before we finish the interview, I'd like to talk to you about something, because we lately came across several happenings in your country that are phenomenal. Um, one of them is a very sad one, uh, the the young man who died after rejecting um, the the traditional treatment, and uh, there there is a bit of a movement built built on that case, right? Yes, that's right. Are you are you as an organization involved in that movement? Yes, there's something um, a bit informal. Let's say a kind of umbrella organization. Well, not an organization yet, but we are trying to to work together. Mm, different organizations, including, of course, uh, uh, the organization uh, APETP, which is the name of the association created by Mario's father. Uh, mm. Mario's the name of the young man who died in, in, in 2013. And uh, there, are, there are other organizations, too, such as, well, of course, mine, of course, uh, uh, the, the Skeptical Circle, and talking about science. What I mean to say is that we are a, a few organizations working together with APETP, which is the organization uh, founded by, by Julian Rodriguez. Julian is the name of Mario. Mario was a young boy, well, not, not, not a boy, but a young man of 21 years old who died in, in, in 2013. That's a terrible, very sad story. Sad, yeah. and it's also... Um, appalling. <laughs> it's more than sad because yeah. you know Mario was told. Well, he, he was given a, a leukemia diagnosis in January 2013. He was offered uh, two chemo cycles and also uh, a bone marrow transplant. Mm. But after the first cycle, he felt so bad. So well, you know, chemo can get to be really destructive and and, and very painful. Mm. And well, his mother was a strong believer on homeopathy and and many other kinds of pseudotherapies. And he eventually went to see somebody who calls himself an orthomolecular doctor. That sounds fishy. Yes, he eventually dropped the, the, the treatment. Uh, he rejected the second cycle of, of chemo. And, uh, well, when he came round and, and saw what really happened to him and that also molecular therapy was simply useless, and, well, it was too late. Yeah, he eventually and died. died in July. Do you, do you know if there were any um, kind of prognosis uh regarding his uh his chances of uh, of completely recovering 
uh, with the traditional treatment? Yes, yes. After the first chemo cycle, the, the leukemia had, um, uh, uh, there was a partial remission, uh, meaning there was no leukemia um, to be seen at that precise moment, right? So the expectations of his recovery were really good. But, mm. you know, chemo, I, I understand side effects are really awful. But when a young man is suffering so much, and somebody tells him that with a few, well, not a few, a huge amount of vitamins and so on, he can get over leukemia. Uh, well, the result is, is, well, you see his death. And he was a physics student, wasn't he? Yes, he, he studied physics at uh, Valencia University. He was a, 20, a 21 years old boy. Uh, I, I guess he was in second course, in second, the second year of physics studies, yes. Mm-hmm. It's an example of how... Uh, scientific education, scientific training isn't exactly, um, what to say, uh, the, the, the solution to everything. There's also a lot of critical thinking to be made, not only um, scientific training, as many people tend to think that if everyone had a scientific training, nobody would go to uh, quack doctors and so on. We see this isn't the case. Yeah, this is exactly what we talked about with uh, Willem Betts, uh, not too long ago on on our interview with him uh, that he started to introduce in his university courses that he offered he started to introduce a kind of critical thinking that's great and that was even surprising for the students you are going to teach me how to think yes something like that mm-hmm. yes but critical reasoning is something you can do without yeah, some some would, would never suspect that to happen uh, with with physics because physics is all all about the way of thinking, not not what you think, but how you think, and uh, it's it's terrible that it can still happen. Hmm. Yeah, it does happen. It does happen. You know, when uh, Julian uh, Mario's father. Uh, he always says that uh, at the end, Marius has, has said to him, uh, Father, I, I made an awful mistake. And mm-hmm. Julian said, no, you, you, you didn't make a mistake. Uh, your mind was muddled by many contra- m- m- a lot of contradictory information, including people you love and respect a lot people of your own family telling you that uh, orthomolecular therapy could help you. No, you can't blame the victim. In no, of course not. Of course not. Yeah, because it's understandable, yeah, that they try everything that that they are being offered because they are so desperate to actually recover. Yeah. And that's what we talked with, with Andres um, about. Do you remember we, there was like a heated discussion how we don't actually, ha- we don't know how they feel. We've got no idea what it, what it means to have the... Uh, the disease that you will possibly die from and try it and you try your best to uh, but from the beginning like i said look we 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 can agree that you know chemotherapy maybe sometimes doesn't work or some uh, drugs might not be 100% and nobody claims 100% success rate but let's you know let's agree on one thing for example orange juice doesn't cure cancer uh herbal remedies don't cure cancer you know these are very simple kind of things to... It's very simple. For example, at home, I mean, in my family, we are particularly sensitive on the matter. 
because my husband has just got over a cancer, <laughs> uh, using, of course, the, the medical, scientific, uh, scientific treatments and so on. And we are really sensitive when somebody tells us that, I don't know, all for molecular therapy, herbal remedies, uh, whatever could cure cancer. We are really um, well, <laughs> really angry when we listen that sort of nonsense because we do know what cancer is at home and we know what you have to do if you want to have a fair chance of getting over it. Yeah, however tough it is. Yeah. Is he okay now? Oh yes, it's perfectly okay. <laughs> Great, that's that's good news. Um, yeah. Well, on a much more positive note, there is one th one other thing that that I'd like to talk to you about, uh, and that's the University of Barcelona and how they are prepared to get rid of their homeopathy masters. That's great, a great piece of news. Yeah, <laughs> I have worked for many years trying to to talk to responsible people at university, uh, principals, etc. And eventually, something good happened after so many years because, you know, the master had been going on for 12 years at Barcelona University. It's a long time. Are there any other universities where courses like this are on? We don't think so because uh, I think the last uh, offensive of uh, homeopathy at universities happened in Zaragoza, at the University of Zaragoza where, uh, you know, the French company Waron said uh, our department, a department of homeopathy, I, I think it happened in 2009, and it eventually disappeared a few years ago. Well, a few years ago, no, last year, I think, after a very, very, very hard work <laughs> yes, on the part of sceptical and scientific organizations, yes. They set up um, a conference just recently after these these news broke out to deal with the situation, right? You know, it was something funny because I, I expect this case is going to be uh, a case of a study at business schools of how not to deal with crisis. Because what Wahon did was simply um, incredible. Uh, you know, the CEO of Wahon, Valérie Poinçon, came to Madrid and gave a press conference. Uh, and uh, well, one of the first things she did was that she and her company were in Spain in order to take away the ignorance about homeopathy we suffered in Spain, which is a very bad way of making things, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. A yeah. very way. It's a very <laughs> transparent thing to say. It's Yes, <laughs> ridiculous. Uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, homeopathy hasn't got a, a, a great tradition in Spain, and so it's been a marginal therapy. So whatever people know about homeopathy is that they see those things in at the chemist, and they see those things because Boiron, and particularly Boiron, ha has spent a lot of money in publicity and marketing in at chemist shops, right? Mm. So Seeing Valérie Boinceau coming to Madrid, telling us that uh, the marketing she spent a lot of money on is not really <laughs> good to convince anybody, is a bit silly. I mean, from a, a public relations point of view, it's simply uh, well, it's, uh, something inconceivable. And what was your role in this 
um, new situation of of the University of Barcelona finishing these uh, these uh, courses that they offer as an organization. Did you take part in in the process? We we make we made campaign, of course. We are always making campaign against homeopathy when they get. Um, a serious place, a serious part in in in, in univer- at university or and, and so on. So of course we did campaign against uh, the master in Barcelona, as we made campaigns against the the department of homeopathy were on paid for at University of Zaragoza. And uh, as we usually do, when we get to know that at certain university, um, I don't know, a master or a, 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 a silly study is going to be made about, I don't know, acupuncture or herbal mm-hmm. remedies and so on, we, are, we take a very serious stance against uh, pseudotherapies at uh, ARP and Society for the Advancement of Critical Thinking. We read on several news outlets that there was a, a university student who started mm-hmm. campaigning for uh, for for it to stop <laughs> Adrian, Adrian Gomez <laughs> yes it all started when Adrian Gomez opened a petition in change.org <laughs> okay uh, so and yes. you joined you joined his petition joined- and this is how you joined the actual movement of of making uh, change we had written before, many years before, to the principal of the, uh, the University of Barcelona asking him yeah. to suppress the studies. But uh, seeing that Adrian had started that petition, we decided to back it up. Yes. That's fantastic. That's, that's, no, a, a, brilliant, fantastic. that's a brilliant yeah. example of, of, of how just civil actions can lead to huge changes in, in, in the world. That's, that's amazing. Uh, it happens, yeah. <laughs> is he uh, part of your organization? Is he a member of the organization? He's not part of, of our organization. He's uh, independent. He's somebody who simply is against that sort of um, uh, pseudotherapies at university, and that was flat. But, but yeah, one can hear that uh, you and really admire his... his... Him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, amazing. And what's his name again? Adrian. Adrian Gomez. Yeah, I think I think we should all memorize that name. Well, I think this sums it up, and um, this is all we had time for. Um, Antonia de Onate, thanks very much for uh, coming on the show for an interview, and good luck with uh, your great work in Spain. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank Bye-bye. you, everyone. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Yeah, no, no. yeah. Um, I think it's time for a logical fallacy. A nice one. Yeah, it is, yes. So today we will talk about false attribution fallacy, also known as argument from false um, authority. Um, now, this fallacy, I think, is very much relevant to skeptics community. Um, well, I mean, I mean, they all are in a way, but this one is particularly so. Um, and it's appealing to an irrelevant, unqualified, unidentified, biased or fabricated source in support of an argument. And boy, don't we all know people who do it all the time, who are trying to make money by writing, you know, scientifically sounding books that rely on uh, claims and so-called research. Um... 
And uh, basically, when claim X is made, source Y is, is a fake or uh, unverifiable source is um, used to verify claim X. So, and therefore, claim X is true, which isn't. Um, and what um, came to my mind? So we all know who Deepak Chopra is. If if guys, uh, some of the listeners don't know, Google him. He's a very fascinating person, uh, or not, um, whichever way you look at it. But he's um, cl- claiming to be a scientist, um, and he's written a few books um, on a subject that, uh, to be frank and honest with you, I have no idea what the subjects of the books are. Um, because he basically talks uh, nonsense all the time, but he's referencing all these studies and uh, science, so-called science, and he loves using quantum mechanics uh, in his books, etc. And so it's um, false attribution all over the place. Um, and I'm sure in the, in the past uh, episodes we have mentioned the um, Deepak Chopra quote generator. <laughs> so that's an interesting thing to do as well. <laughs> yeah. um, if somebody, if you're having an argument with someone and somebody is saying, oh yes, I know this is uh, true because of the study, but I can't remember who did the study or whatever. Um, there is no need to dismiss the, the argument straight away and say, no, you're not right because you don't remember the study, but definitely worth looking into it further and seeing whether there was actually a study or the person just made the whole thing up because it's easier to just say, because science. <laughs> um, so there you go. That's false attribution fallacy. Yeah, you know what? why my uh, favorite false attribution was? Um when we had the debate with the creationists in Hungary. Oh, yeah. And, um, yeah, they just uh, went around on shows uh, holding holding these lectures, uh, showing a movie um, full of scientists denying evolution. None of those okay. scientists were actually biologists, let alone, huh. let alone evolutionary biologists. So a philosopher, a mathematician, a chemist, etc. Yeah. So are those people really competent, the most qualified to say anything about evolution? Nah. <laughs> so it's it's just no. They're all they're all experts, but in something else. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, but yeah. still, actually, it's um, it's kind of a borderline between the the false attribution fallacy and the, the appeal to authority hmm. or argument from authority. We use that one actually in appeal to authority because I remember you mentioning it before. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much, Yelena. Case of déjà vu. <laughs> déjà vu. Yeah. Thank you very déjà much, Yelena. Okay. Hey everyone, this is Brian Dunning from the Skeptoid Podcast. I'm the guy who does that whole, you're listening to Skeptoid. I'm Brian Dunning from Skeptoid.com, thing that's been annoying you for almost 10 years now. For the first time, I'm trying to come out to a skeptics conference in Europe. It's the Rationalist International Conference in Estonia, April 23rd and 24th, 2016. I was given a last-minute speaking invitation, so we put together a quick crowdfunding campaign to cover the costs of flying me out there. If you think it's worthwhile to bring a little bit of Skeptoid to Estonia, consider donating a few dollars to the campaign. There's a big link to it on the homepage of Skeptoid.com. The time is short, so it's going to require a big push to make it happen. I've got a great live show already, and I'm really looking forward to meeting as many of you as I can. And remember, 
second only to the European Skeptics Podcast. Your favorite show is Skeptoid. I'm Brian Dunning from Skeptoid.com. Yes, Pontus. Yes, that's me. Someone must have been really wrong at some point. Somebody's always really wrong. Yeah. I keep tracking them down. So today's really wrong goes to Håkan Eriksson, who is the coach for the Swedish national under-21 football team. So this is the football team. It's not the men's team, but the guys who are preparing to take over. The U-21 team. The Swedish U-21 team has been very successful lately, and uh, they won the European Championship last year. Håkan Eriksson has attributed a lot of that success to a company called HeartMath. Have you heard of it? Nope. No, no. HeartMath? No. So HeartMath is an American company, and they manufacture a little device that you pinch to your ear... And then you have a little handheld device which shows graphs showing your heartbeat and heart rate and stuff. So far, so good. You could look at that. But what they claim is that by focusing on the patterns on the, on the display, you can change your heart rate and your heartbeat. And, but that's not the, even the most strange thing. Then your heart will instruct your brain to perform better. They say that the heart is a small brain with intuition who is actually the one who's guiding your, your body's performance. Uh, uh, hang on, they're saying that the heart is <laughs> yeah. now a brain. Hang That's on. it. How? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, so, some people can heal with feet and some people have... Oh, I don't mm-hmm. know. Anyway. So well, you can focus on these uh, patterns, on these graphs, on, on the handheld device, and then you can perform better in a, in a sports situation. Yeah. You can focus, you can, you, your body relaxes, etc. So uh, this, this is, I mean, they spent a lot of money on this. You, to become a full-fledged uh, user of these uh, machines, it's about 4,000 euro. And then, of course, of you have to pay for the equipment as well. And um, we have mentioned Stephen Novella already a couple of times this in this show. And, of course, he's a neurologist Sounds at familiar. Yale University. Yeah, he's a neurologist at Yale University, very well known to skeptics, because he hosts the Skeptics Guide to the Universe. So he was actually interviewed on Swedish radio, and this is what he had to say about uh, heart math. Everything I've seen about heart math, including these, are, this is just noise. This is just noise in the system. There's no evidence that this correlates to anything meaningful physiologically. So, pretty damning words from Mr. Novella. Uh, it goes actually even further, because if you go into an interview uh, HeartMath uh, officials, which uh, Swedish radio has done, they are saying we can take this even further, because uh, somehow they connect this uh, with uh, magne- the magnetic field of the of the Earth, so they're saying their next experiment that they're working on is that in connection with big catastrophes and suffering like terror attacks, etc., the negative thought of all humans will affect the human magnetic field. So they are setting up a hundred stations worldwide to to measure this. 
So, so they're nice. clearly not really based in, in scientific uh, reality. Uh, Stephen Novella has already said in 2012 on his blog, he said that this is the equivalent of interpreting pigeons nesting on the radio dish as alien signals. Hmm. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah, I like so, that. Com- yeah, <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Nice. So, yeah, he had also this to say on the Swedish uh, radio. They haven't done any of their hard scientific work to know that these squiggles mean what they say it means. And when he says these squiggles, he means those uh, patterns that appear on the handheld device. So nothing, nothing that they do, ha- has, they haven't proved that anything that they are doing uh, works, of course. And it sounds very implausible as well. So what's very likely happening, because these sports people, in the, I mean sports people, the soccer players, of course, they say that this works for me because I focused on this and then my heartbeat went, the heartbeat went down and I could focus a lot. Well, that's just called relaxing. <laughs> you don't need the, the peace in the air and you don't need a handheld device to do it. It's just relaxing and then you're more focused and then you can do what you do. So it's, But I can see it's easy for them if it gets presented to them in a sort of scientific way that they feel that, you know, confirmation bias sets in. So so they feel that it's working for them. But it's all bogus. Mm, too bad. Too bad. So, Beep. the really wrong... Yeah. <laughs> the, the really wrong of today goes to Håkan Eriksson, coach for the Swedish national U21 team. And uh, despite the criticism he's gotten, he says, we are going to use it again for the Olympics. Nice. Yay. Yeah. Go. Okay, thanks very much, Pontus. I'm afraid this is that time again when we need to close the show. And what better way to do it than with a nice quote? Indeed. Um, Today's quote comes from Lewis Wolpert, who was a British developmental biologist, author and broadcaster. He said, I would teach the world that science is the best way to understand the world, and that for any set of observations there is only one correct explanation. Also, science is value-free as it explains the world as it is. Ethical issues arise only when science is applied to technology from medicine to industry. Hmm. Hmm. Here you go. Very good. Very true. Recommended read for the UK government. <laughs> ah, exactly. Yeah. Preach- you preaching. <laughs> yes, I am. Okay, um, that was a great quote. Thank you very much. And I'd like to thank both of you. Yes, it's been Um, a pleasure as always. Thank you, Andras. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Hey. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. 
If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Kisha J. Gray and George Rubb and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. I almost hit the stop button. <laughs> <laughs> that was the show. This has been your ESP experience. <laughs> okay. Do we have something else? Well, I got a... I got a... a what did I get? I'll start again. <laughs> Elena. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it always sounds like sounds like someone who's been just woken up. <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> oh, Yana. Yeah. I'm awake, it's, I promise. It's Sana hope, but Sana what? До свидания. До свидания. Всего хорошего. Пока-пока. Фока, 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 До встречи. Мир обесейс. What did you say? What did you say? Like just, just various ways to say goodbye. There's literally hundreds in Russian. Oh, really?